Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, and I'm joined today by Emma Powell, our new banking correspondent. How are you doing, Emma? Yeah, good, thanks. A good week? Yeah. Yeah, good, good. Busy. Busy, busy, busy. We're going to talk about utilities this week, which is your old sector, actually. Well, still still mine. Still though. your sector, yeah. but uh, one you've covered for, uh, for a bit longer than banks. So we've got some news out from Centrica which we'll discuss, and uh, a couple of results in the financial services industry, which are quite interesting. And Alex Newman, how are you doing, Alex? You've had a, a busy week uh, in terms of contributions to the magazine, haven't you? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. Um, yeah, it's been a busy week. Lots and lots to uh, get through. Yeah, so you're now covering resources for us, oil and gas and mining, giving up the small caps beat, uh, yes. which you've handed over to a new writer, Megan yeah. Boxall. But there's a bit of a, a sort of legacy going on in terms of what you've done this week. Uh, some of the small caps you've covered crop up in a feature you've written about superbugs. Yes, uh, so there's a, there's a couple of uh, aim-listed plays on uh, antimicrobial resistance, which I'll explain a bit more. Okay, sounds, uh, sounds fascinating. Uh, a hot topic uh, in the pharma world. I mean, it's been an interesting week on the markets, and I'm glad you're with us, Alex, because a lot of that's been driven by what's going on with the oil price in particular and some news over at the miners. But the market has rebounded very, very strongly this week, which will come as a, a great relief to many people. The FTSE's rallied about 9% since it hit a low last week, which is uh, extraordinary. The oil price has been jumping, which is good. And uh, I guess one of the big stories of the week was what's been going on in the oil producing nations, Saudi Arabia and Russia in particular. Yeah. What happened there? So on Tuesday, there was a lot of speculation early in the day that Russia and Saudi Arabia were going to meet and they were going to uh, agree something like a, a some sort of cut to, to stop the complete collapse in oil prices in the last 18 months. They did meet. But what came out of the the agreement was immediately sort of downplayed by the market traders who had initially bid up the oil price before the results of the meeting, then decided this deal or whatever this deal between the two nations might become probably won't be that that significant. No. So what they've agreed is to freeze production, but not cut production. Freeze production at January levels. uh, But the big point here is that they need wider agreement for, for either freezing or cuts. Iran, which has obviously just come out of sanctions, they're, they're saying they're going to continue to increase production. They're not They're not going to listen to the Saudis who are asking them to freeze production when it was a Saudi increase in production which has led to the price drop. So without more cooperation from other OPEC producers, it's looking like a bit of a dud. Okay, deal. okay but nevertheless, the oil price has made a bit of a recovery anyway this week, back up to about $35 a barrel for Brent crude last I looked, and that's up in kind of mid-20s mm. uh, in January. So a bit of optimism. A bit of optimism. It's still, it's still nowhere near the viable levels for the for the industry. So um, so it's not, you know, a $35 a barrel oil is not really good news for, for most oil producers still. No, I mean, that low oil price was a big uh, worry for many people who are looking at the BG Shell deal uh, and, and the viability of that but that completed this that's, week that's done that's a done deal so um, I'm no longer a BG shareholder uh, a check will be on its way to me and some shell shares and we're going to be looking at that in, in more detail in the future if you uh, if you like me are in a position where you've suddenly become a shell shareholder what should you be doing with your your new shareholding so we're going to be looking at that in more detail indeed yeah the gold price mm. It's something you've looked at this week as well. Yeah. Uh, and that's been very interesting because when the markets have been weak and, and these worries about you know, a new global recession have, have been brewing, coming to the fore, the gold price has itself staged a bit of a recovery uh, in the last few weeks. Yeah, so there's been a, there's been a gold, gold price rally uh, since the beginning of the year. So many, many listeners and, and readers will be aware that there was a very, very long bull rally 
which ended or or may have sort of stalled in about 2011. Since 2014, there's obviously been increased speculation that the Fed is going to uh, raise interest rates, which is typically bad for gold because gold doesn't earn earn interest. Mm -hmm. So so there has been uh, more of a risk-on strategy for investors for the last couple of years. But with the the dithering uh, of the Fed at, at the moment and the the call by the market that the central bank, yeah, the, the U.S. central bank is either very nervous about uh, about global uh, output and growth. That has that has resulted in a flight to gold. So we've seen large uh, inflows to uh, gold ETFs, and and the price has uh, has rebounded. We're also expecting increased demand for the physical commodity this year as well. That obviously has been really really good news for um, for the listed gold miners on in in London. So this month alone, we've seen very large increases in the share prices of uh, Pan-African Resources, Acacia, Highland, um, and Rand Gold, which is uh, it, which is uh, one of our, our buy tips. Whether that rally will continue, I mean, it's, it's very it's very difficult to say, but you would expect that if the Fed continues to, to err on the side of caution in, in raising interest rates, then we can expect to see more flight to gold. Uh, and Chris Diller has written, it's written this week as well that... Um, Gold, you know, in such uncertain times, is, is is quite a worthy insurance policy. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's a, a long-held view of the magazine. That you know, even if you're not using gold as a speculative instrument, it is definitely a non-correlated asset that can, uh, that can protect your portfolio from uh, from tough times. I mean, you've looked at the results of one of these miners, Acacia, in more detail this week. How were they? Acacia results were described as uh, by the chief executive as as, uh, as slower. Well, the turnaround that he had been expecting was slower than he had hoped to achieve. The impairments that the uh, the, the company had to book last year meant that there was a bit of a sell-off in the shares when they announced their results. I mean, still, it's done very well um, so far uh, in February. Uh, I think there's all of the all the gold miners listed in London have have showed uh, at least a twenty percent share price gain. So. Uh, there is, you know, there are some still good prospects for Acacia, even though um, it, it had a very difficult year last year. They had some problems with one of their mines and getting back on, uh, uh, getting back online there. But we, we've kept the shares in a hold. Uh, we see a bit more uh, upside with Rangold, which has a has a higher margin cost profile as well. Yeah, I guess. I mean, so the you know uh, recovering gold price is good for these guys, but the, the name of the game for the past couple of years has been getting the cost of production down. Yeah, indeed. Okay, um, while we're on the subject of mining, uh, you also covered Rio Tinto and Anglo American this week. I mean, the results look ugly, but um, mm. you know the shares bounced quite sharply, particularly yeah. in Anglo's case. So, I mean, what's what's the story there? So, uh, well, Anglo's shares. I mean, it's it's been it's been a very interesting time because there was a lot of there's been a lot of very very heavy selling for the last few years, and the shares have really gained since about 2011. They in the last month they've doubled. That seems to be because people or investors think that this restructuring they've announced to launch the new Anglo American is going to work. How they're going to do that? necessarily involves killing a lot of the old Anglo and that means large asset sell-offs and a move to specifically diamonds so they own De Beers, um, Platinum Metal Group and Copper as well which there's uh, people a bit more bullish about as a commodity there but they're going to be lo- they're going to be probably seen as a forced seller of the of their existing assets and I mean I don't know who would necessarily want to buy an iron mine at the moment or uh, or a coal mine I'm sure there are some longer term uh, buyers out there, but it's going to be very, very hard for them to execute this uh, 
this uh, this plan. Mm, well, on a much smaller scale, we had uh, results from Hargreaves Services this week, which is a UK coal group, and uh, yeah, the story there doesn't seem to be getting any better. Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting company because if you see Harworth Group, which was uh, which was uh, you know a very embattled coal producer, they have actually done quite well in turning their uh, their former their former coal uh, assets into a property portfolio. Mm. That's the long term hope. Or one of the long-term hopes for uh, Hargreaves Services, but because they're a dividend payer, there's going to be still continued heavy selling in the shares because people got into, you know, you wouldn't get into thermal coal uh, to see, you know, massive growth. Mm. It's a case of downscaling the business and hoping to get some cash out of it. So, so there may be a, a long-term recovery play in Hargreaves Services. We don't see that for the foreseeable future, though. No. You mentioned dividends. Uh, Rio and Anglo both done something with their dividends, not necessarily good things with yeah. their dividends. So um, Anglo's cut its Anglo's final cut. dividend. Yes. Uh, uh, and and Rio, uh, which maintained its final 2015 dividend, has now moved to a flexible dividend policy. That probably means that um, dividends this year are going to be about half what they were in 2015, that still is the best, you know, a, a worst case um, forward yield of about four and a half percent, which is pretty good, uh, considering um, most natural resources stocks are going to really, really struggle to to keep this up. As opposed to Anglo, which has a significant debt profile, Rio has uh, quite a lot more breathing room. Even though it did quite a heavy share uh, buyback program last year, it still has good interest cover. And uh, and although it's a, a, a you know it's mainly involved in iron ore production, there is free cash flow coming out there because they are you know they've got some very high quality assets where they have got a bit more margin breathing room. Okay, so probably our pick of the large miners. Yes, yeah, and and if we look at BHP uh, Billiton, who are reporting next week, they've got slightly. Uh, higher debt exposure, a bit more of a headache from from their petroleum as well, division okay. as well. Okay, there you go. Dividend cuts also uh, on the menu this week from Centrica, Emma. It's not in the magazine, but we had the results from Centrica today, didn't we? Yeah, it's not necessarily true to say there was a dividend cut because the final dividend was actually maintained, um, but it's because they cut the dividend earlier in the year that the overall dividend for this year... Is, is lower. Is, is lower. Yeah. Like we already knew that was going to happen, that it, Ian Conn said as part of the strategic review they were going to be cutting the dividend. But these results were actually fairly well received by the market. Um, they were slightly better than expected. Shares up about 3.5% in this morning's trading. Net debt down by about 9%. As expected, of course, um, its exploration and production profits were down but it's reducing um, that side of the business. They're focusing a lot more on their customer-facing businesses like British Gas, Board Gas in Ireland, and also Direct Energy, which is in the US. Direct Energy did very well. British Gas, not so good because they've had some issues with their business um, accounts kind of switching their billing system, so they actually made a loss on that. But on the residential side up, I mean, not too bad. I mean, this is like a long term recovery story. Mm. It's very early days. They think about 200 million this year, they're targeting for costs to, to be cut. You've also been in a new spotlight this week, which mm. is looking at Central from a slightly different angle, which is the uh, the price cuts that it's, yeah. it's going to be, it has made. 
has made. Yeah, they'll be uh, in, they'll, the they'll, yeah, they'll yes. come into effect from the end of March and obviously, you know, this is actually kind of mirroring what happened last year. Eon cut their prices. Um, and then Scottish Power, SSE followed, and then EDF and British Gas were the last ones um, to announce their price cuts. Although actually worth noting that Centrica have cut their prices more than SSE and the others three times since the start of 2015. So the article in the mag is just looking at, you know, what impact this will have on the group's earnings, if any, for Centrica and SSE. Um Obviously, the whole rationale behind the price cuts is that they're meant to be passing on lower wholesale costs. Um, And obviously, with these utility companies, there's a massive kind of political angle where there's always pressure for them to be cutting prices. So, you know, a lot of the price reductions are often in response to that and to pass on the kind of lower wholesale costs to customers, residential um, consumers. But... um, I mean, to be honest, I would say that our verdict is very much there's a whole host of other fish they have to fry, Centrica and SSE. The lower commodity prices has obviously been the biggest bugbear for them. In terms of looking at kind of which one is preferred or which one is best, kind of people I talk to and I would kind of agree with this, that Centrica is the one that we prefer out of SSE and Centrica, only because I think this repositioning of the business more towards the um, customer-facing businesses is a good idea. Obviously, um, Centrica is a lot less capital-intensive business as well, so it is, it's a lot easier for it to kind of cut its costs. So, so presumably that means we're not worried about the dividend. Um, well, so I mean, it's lower for the whole year, but if the final dividend was maintained, that suggests that you know, re- yeah, dividend recent cover, pressure I mean, is not so great. Dividend cover is another. Obviously, people invest in these energy stocks for their dividends, mm. um, and I think the yield for Centrica this uh, for 2015 was six percent, and SSE was around was about the four and a half percent mark. So they're good dividends, but actually. This is another big worry, actually. Um, Centrica's dividend cover was 1.4 times, SSE even lower, about 1.3 times, and SSE's has been declining. I think it was 2011 that it was 1.5 times, which is their target. So that's quite a long time ago that they actually were on their target, and 1.5 times isn't exactly brilliant anyway. So that is another big concern for investors. Um but, you know, not to be all doom and gloom on Centrica, it did manage to maintain its final dividend. And Ian Conn said that progressive dividend policy in the future is very much going to depend on their cash flow position. OK, so not necessarily uh, shares for income seekers to jump into head no. first at the moment, but, but one to watch. Yeah, definitely one to watch. I mean... As I say, I mean, they're both trading on uh, very low multiples at the moment. I mean, cheaper than you'd ever buy them before. But, um, you know, of course, there are reasons for that. This Centrica reported a just over a billion pound loss. So, you know, that's the reason they're trading so mm. low. But no, I think if you're looking for income, definitely go down the water company kind of avenue. Good, uh, good advice. Um, I mean, there's uh, there's another little story from little huge story from the utilities industry in the Seven Days page this week, uh, which is EDF and uh, troubles there, which may put in jeopardy its plans to build the next generation of nuclear uh, power stations in the UK. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not really surprising that uh, plans to build new nuclear are very dragged out and subject to so many delays so far. But yeah, basically EDF have come out and said that they're going to keep online for um, nuclear power stations for longer just because they don't, the existing nuclear is not going to be enough to deliver the power the country needs. Also, EDF has been having very drawn out negotiations with some of its Chinese investors because obviously the power prices have dropped so low. Issues around funding for that and how much they're going to invest, you know, they still haven't made an agreement on that. So it's all up in the air still, okay. not surprisingly. No, well, good news for me because it means the, uh, the threat of a nuclear power station 10 miles from my house recedes somewhat. So uh, it gives me a bit of breathing space. But not good for keeping the lights on in the UK. Obviously, right, I'm being exactly. purely, purely be selfish. selfish here. Okay, sorry. Let's turn to your new beat, banking, and stick to seven days because another little story here, which is interesting. Metro Bank and uh, its plan flotation, which the sort of enthusiasm seems to have waned slightly. Well, yeah, it's an interesting one actually because um, c- compare it to all the other banks, and it does look very um, expensive still. The story is that obviously they're planning to float, but before that. They're going to do they're going to their existing investors to try and get money off them before the flotations. I mean, it's the exacts of uh, this IPO are uh, a bit up in the air at the moment, but they basically cut the price um, that they're looking for for from investors from £24 to £20. But as I said, that still makes it very expensive compared to the other banks. And it's interesting, actually, compare it to um, CYBG, which floated uh, last week. That was ultra cheap. But obviously, when you compare its return on equity and a lot of other issues it had, you know, that was the explanation behind that. So actually, it will be interesting to, to, to kind of get an explanation, I guess, on why Metrobank is looking so expensive still. Well, it's quite small, isn't it? I mean, mm. this was, uh, you know, essentially built from scratch, uh, you know, five years ago or, or so, in response to the crisis, essentially. Mm. How big is it now? You know, has it, does it have an, an, it doesn't seem to have an enormous branch network. It's... Well, actually, um, one of the reasons behind the flow is that they do want to grow their branch network. So you're buying growth. I guess the the price tag is because of the potential rather than what it's already got. I well, suppose. I imagine that's uh, yes. would be their rationale behind it. Well, CYBG is closed down in Yorkshire. I mean, that's been around a long time. That's uh, that's a very well established business. It has, yeah. That's been around. In fact, our uh, company's editor father, I believe, we used to be CFO of oh, that, really? and that was many years ago. Ian Smith Senior. Okay. Um, so yeah, and that was about twenty years ago. So. Yeah, it's been around a while. There you go, friends in high places. Let's uh, turn to a couple of results you put together this week. One in particular caught my eye, Plus 500, which has been uh, an interesting story. Uh, It's had its problems, but it's putting them behind it. Yeah, I mean, obviously we wrote about this um, last May. They uh, kind of suspended trading on some of their UK customer accounts. Um, So Plus 500 is um, kind of an online provider. It allows people to take long and short positions through contracts for difference. Yeah. Yeah. And basically, the FCA ordered it to review some of its documentation just to make sure it was uh, kind of complying with anti-money laundering regulations and things like that. So that took about a month for them to do. But they obviously, their customers couldn't, or some of their customers couldn't uh, make trades. They couldn't accept new customers. So it caused a lot of disruption. And obviously, on the back of this, 
They had to undergo a lot of kind of compliance reviews. I know they hired a lot more compliance staff to kind of review all their kind of processes. Obviously, that didn't come cheap. So Mm. it's not surprising that that did make a dent in their profits. You know, the fact that people couldn't trade for a while, that made a dent in their profits. And also they've done this big marketing drive as well. They're going for the higher value Western European customers now. So uh, a lot of kind of marketing costs, compliance costs, things like that put a dent in their profits. But actually worth noting that um, their new customers the amount of new customers they have did rise quite substantially. So you could argue that actually that marketing is paying off. Yeah, and I mean, the profits, you say that, you know, it's put a dent in them. It's put a small dent in them by the looks of things because these are pretty chunky profits still. Yeah, I mean, they're still, I mean, the dividend yield is exceptional. So, um, I mean, we've we've actually just kind of been a bit more cautious because it was a tip of ours, but we've just been a bit more cautious because... It's still early days and I think when something like that happens that you still do have to rebuild investor trust. Yeah, I guess there were worries because this would have this this little uh you know, compliance scare um followed in the wake of problems at Quindale and uh you know, some of the other small AIM shares and AIM was getting a bit of a, a bit of a kicking at the time this happened. I guess there were worries that plus five hundred there was something really wrong with it. Um but that doesn't seem to have been the case. The chief exec was at great pains to, to, you know, explain all this new staff they've taken on board and, and things like that. I mean, as you say, it was a bit of an aim darling, actually. And then when news of this came out, the shares plummeted. Yes. Um, the tie can turn very quickly when you're well, an aim company. Yeah, exactly. But no, I mean, the shares have recovered since. But um, yeah, we're just a little bit, you know, cautious before we advise people to start ploughing back in again. Okay. Um, and yeah, tell me just to, uh, to round off your, uh, your results this week, uh, you had some uh, fund managers, uh, fund management groups supporting. Um, and of those, I guess Ashmore is the one that, that we keep an eye on most closely, given that it's essentially a, an emerging market proxy. Any signs of recovery there? Any optimism? Uh, well, well, I'd argue that the bottom hasn't hit yet. But actually, interesting to say that a couple of analysts I've seen have put um, Aberdeen and Ashmore back on buys. So some people are, would argue that, uh, you know, you get it for a good price now. But um, yeah, I'd be a, a bit cautious about mm. it, to well, be if, honest. If there's an emerging market recovery, well, they're yeah. going to fly. Yeah. So, I mean, I but guess. they're still seeing massive outflows, so... Yeah, but they can turn quickly as well. I mean, look, as you, you said, Alex, you know, the gold price, there was huge outflows from gold ETFs over the last few years. And then, you know, sort of, you know, growth wobble, growth scare and, and everyone's piling back in. So, that you know, that can turn quite quickly too. Yeah, I know. They're just completely at the mercy of the market, aren't they? Because they're investing in it, these companies. So Indeed, indeed. OK, well, uh, thank you very much. We've got lots more results in the magazine this week. We've got some biggies uh, from the Pharma Sector Shire and uh, GlaxoSmithKline. Um, some property that you've covered as well, Hamson in particular, and a couple of tech companies, Amino and Fidesa, uh, that Theron has, has written about. But let's go back to Pharma. Because, uh, Alex, you've written uh, one of the uh, lead features this week, and it's the third in our series, Finding the Cure. We've looked at cancer, we've looked at Alzheimer's, and now we're looking at something that's becoming a real worry, which is uh, antimicrobial resistance. Very good. Well wow. <laughs> so it's the world of antibiotics in a uh, few syllables. So when Harriet looked at Alzheimer's and cancer, these areas where the big pharma companies are already heavily involved, antibiotics is, is an area which has been pretty much deserted by big pharma companies. So Pfizer 
in the 50s and 60s when there was a, a, a lot of a lot of antibiotics new new, new families of, of antibiotics coming out Pfizer was a big champion of this now most have retreated from the space and there's a few reasons for that the first is that antibiotics uh, as we probably all know uh, develop resistance over time so as the bacteria mutates it will develop resistance and that makes the drug eventually uh, obsolete so the job of ph- the pharmaceutical industry is therefore to continually develop new drugs obviously developing any drug which can tackle this resistance is a very very tough tough project and so any antibiotic a company would invest invest in developing would need to do incredibly well the other problem with antibiotics is that the more you use them the greater the risk of resistance. So there's really no surprise that the, the pharma industry has not seen the financial incentives pretty much since the 70s to to step up their development programmes. Um, but the, the tide does seem to be turning a little bit. And uh, last month at the, uh, the, uh, the Davos conference, uh, about 85 pharma groups, including all the big names, so GSK, uh, AstraZeneca, etc., signed up a declaration saying that they were they were now going to to get involved and they're calling on the governments to help them come up with economic incentive plans which would which would also encourage them because obviously they need to make a profit out of this to get back into antibiotics mm. i mean it's a real it is a real worry because you know essentially you know humanity's survival is at stake here if, if uh, we lose or if antibiotics cease to be effective you know then we can't there's many it just simply means we can't treat many many illnesses yeah and the role of antibiotics is so so crucial in all of surgery uh, and in multiple therapies and also in it's often used and abused in 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 rearing livestock as well yeah that's well that's something i've been covering on my course which, oh yeah uh, okay. absolutely yeah no i mean antibiotics were used in cattle uh, and still are extensively in, in north america not so much over here in in poultry poultry mm. was a big one because um, obviously poultry uh the preparation of poultry is is kind of a very disease ridden business unfortunately fish, uh, fish as well apparently apparently some some salmon in North America have consumed their body weight by the time it hits the table their body weight in antibiotics my goodness uh, which is which is you know when you think about the risk of uh, resistance as well you hear something like that sort of spells out the problem and, and the sort of various abuses of of antibiotics yeah absolutely okay so I mean that's that's good so the kind of backdrop is we need something to be done there's there's essentially government you know uh and and in- industry support of initiatives to tackle this problem, but at a kind of micro level, mm. um, turning to the UK markets, which is what we do, who is there that's that's getting involved in this space? Right. So we really need to look to the junior end of the market to see evidence of, of, of people stepping into this space. There's a couple of companies on AIM. There's one called Motif Bio, which has the patent to uh, an antibiotic candidate called Iclaprim. It was abandoned a few years ago. It was initially developed by Roche and they've taken the patent, reassessed the clinical and preclinical data and they think they can they can take this to market. It's going to be a couple of years until they eventually commercialise it, but they're moving ahead with human trials now and they've you know they've got, had some very strong feedback from the FDA. So they're going through currently the multiple phase trials. But the you know the company is betting on this it is in some ways a two-way, a two-way bet, but they're also supported by 
programs from the the Food and Drug Administration in the US to accelerate any attempted antibiotic drug development programs. I mean, that in itself tells you how important this is. Yeah, because you know, the FDA doesn't like to cut corners. Yeah, um, exactly. But you know, I think I think yeah, there is a pressing need to get to get some of these drugs through the system mm. quickly. That sounds interesting. And any others? Yeah. So there's a second one uh, I briefly mentioned as well called Red X Pharma. They're slightly further behind. Uh, a competitive motif bio, but they do have a number of um, so-called gram-positive and gram-negative anti-infective candidates. One of which is uh, is a tie-up with um, with a uh, Sanofi in in France and GlaxoSmithKline, uh, which looks like the likely candidate. So when we're looking at these companies, the junior end, it may not be that they're going to end up getting the you know the long-term royalties, but there's good prospect if there, there is success here that they're going to. You know, they're either going to be bought by a larger pharma group or there's going to be, you know, there'll be a significant one off payment. Okay. Well, it's a fascinating feature. It's a compelling read. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things that it's much bigger than, than investment. It's a, mm. it's a huge topic. In fact, the whole series is. I think this, this really continues it nicely. So uh, thank you very much. And thank you, Emma, for your contributions today and, of course, every day. Really good stuff in the magazine this week. Absolutely chock full. We've got Algie Hall exploring stop losses. He's putting that in the context of the magic formula screen that he runs and seeing how you can actually implement effective stop loss strategies uh, without impacting performance. We've got uh, John Rosier back with his investor diary. It's another real life portfolio, real money there. And you know he's actually quite enjoyed the, uh, the volati- volatility on the markets, giving him opportunity to uh, top up some of his favourite holdings. Six folks from Harriet Russell on discount retailing, pound land, 99p stores and all that stuff, B&M European bargains. Plenty in the personal finance and funds section, which I'm sure they will talk about on their podcast tomorrow. And actually, the cover feature is a personal finance-led story this week on tax, some ways you can implement some tax-saving strategies in your portfolio, particularly using VCTs, Venture Capital Trust. So uh, thank you, everyone. Thanks again. And thank you for listening. Magazine Shrink Your Tax, available in all good news agents, £4.70. And we'll catch up again next week. Thank you. Thank you.